Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. In this, the final episode of the Hometown Stories Summer Series, we'll hear stories about new hometowns. Sometimes your hometown changes, and for a little while at least, you find yourself a stranger in your own hometown. Our first story comes from Lauren Warnamende. She didn't quite fit in as a newish kid at her junior high school in Michigan, but she had a lion on her side. Butterscotch Candy and Lion's Teeth by Lauren G. Warnamende. Junior high had some saving graces, but the bus ride wasn't one of them. I think the torture began the winter of sixth grade, 1983. The cold of southeast Michigan crept in, and it was time to bundle up. My winter wear wasn't anything fancy, but I did have a beautiful gray and green wool band to slip over my ears. My parents had brought it back from a trip to Alaska, and it made its own statement. I am not from around here. I look nothing like your run-of-the-mill earmuffs. That statement was only an extension of me. We had lived in Michigan for less than three years, and before that, from my kindergarten through third grade, we'd lived in the Philippines. I was definitely not from around here. Naturally, my headband caught the attention of my ninth-grade neighbor, Michael. He hollered at me from across the street, Is that a hair warmer? At least, that's what I heard, and I thought it was ridiculous. No, I called back. It's an ear warmer. That's what I said, he scoffed. Ear warmer. From that day on, Mike, his seventh-grade brother, their friends, and anyone else on the bus who wanted to look cool called me ear warmer. Perhaps it wouldn't have been intolerable if they had stuck to name-calling. But in the inexplicable decision-making process of junior high boys, I became the target of whatever bullying they could get away with. Seats on the bus were limited, and if I happened to be in one where they sat in front or behind me, I would likely arrive home with a spitwad or two in my hair or a half-sucked butterscotch candy. I was a good target for many reasons— I didn't have a close friend on the bus to back me up, and I had no witty tongue with which to fling a sharp comeback. I didn't fit into the culture, and I didn't have the language to explain why I didn't fit. For the most part, I didn't want to, which didn't help build bus friendships. I was perfectly satisfied to go contrary to whatever trend was in, whether a Michael Jackson sequin glove or a neon t-shirt. I don't remember how much the bus driver knew about the bullying. I know my parents were aware of it, but I don't remember how they tried to turn the pattern of attack. Whatever it was, it didn't work, and I practiced my avoidance method by sinking down into a seat, pulling out a book to read, and trying to pretend that the bus and the kids on it didn't exist. Books had always been my friends, and when we lived in Manila, the capital of the Philippines, they were close companions for the hour-long bus ride I had taken each day from our home to the nearest expat school. The heavy heat, humidity, and diesel fumes of Manila evaporated when I slipped away with the Pevensies to Narnia, tessered with Meg Murray in A Wrinkle in Time, or went on a buggy ride with Laura Ingalls. My bus stop was the first of many, and there was a long ride before friends hopped on, and I had plenty of reading time. Now that I was riding a bus in the States, it made sense to bring my books along, particularly because the human friends I had rode other buses. One day, toward the end of that sixth grade year, I pulled my book out and settled down to read. I was going through the Chronicles of Narnia, and my book was the copy I'd had since I was three, and a family friend realized my parents hadn't read them, and promptly bought the set for us. 
My mom read them to me, and as soon as I could read chapter books, I read them myself. By sixth grade, this set had lived in two states and had spent four years in the tropics of the Philippines and had been read countless times. The glue of the bindings was long gone, and a rubber band held each volume together when I wasn't reading it. That day, I peeled off the rubber band and opened my loose-leaf book across my lap. I don't remember which book it was, but I do know Aslan was there. What are you reading, earwormer? The voice sneered and teased, and Mike's buddy Chad loomed over the back of my seat. One long arm reached down and grabbed the top of my book. Instinctively, I gripped both sides of the open book, desperately holding those loose pages in place, frantically wondering how to keep my beloved friend from flying into the air and scattering all over the bus, impossible to retrieve, ruined forever. This was unthinkable. Time stretched as my mind whirled, and finally I did the only thing I could. I leaned down and chomped Chad's hand good and hard. He screeched and let go, shooting up and shaking his hand. She bit me, he howled toward the bus driver, way up at the front of the bus. I don't know if she heard or responded, but I know I didn't get into trouble. And I also know that from then on, Mike and his cronies stuck to name-calling. After that year, they moved on to high school. And while there were other forms of bus bullying over the next couple years before I was able to switch to a route with a friend, nothing came close to that dreadful day when my book almost died. The triumph of my success still gleams out over the years, a satisfactory moment when I stood up for something precious and saved it. I couldn't do much to save myself, but I could protect that book. Long years later, Mike's younger brother apologized to my father for his terrible bus behavior. But that day, the lion was with me. And I still have my book. Rachel Donahue and her family are Americans, but they learned to fit right in in Malaga, Spain. They even learned how to give directions like the locals. This is Finding Our Way in Spain, a story in four parts by Rachel S. Donahue. Part 1. We were young and adventurous our first year in Spain, so we made a decision mid-road trip to detour and see the famous Alhambra Palace in Granada. We didn't know, then, that one must either have a reservation months in advance or wait in a line that grows throughout the day. We arrived mid-afternoon and couldn't even see the door. We had to pack our disappointments back in the car and set the GPS for home. Now, children, these were the days when a GPS in your car was a new and wonderful thing. I still looked out the window in awe that somewhere beyond the blue, a satellite could follow us, even in Spain. We had no reason to distrust our little guide. She took us confidently around corners and down side streets until the way narrowed, so much so that we had to pull in the mirrors to pass through. But this was not at all strange for a city built before cars. On the other side of the tight place, the way before us opened right up into a little plaza, whose only other exit was a narrow set of stairs on the other side. Now imagine with me, if you will, backing a rental car through a narrow place between two stone walls with no side mirrors. <laughs> Boy, was I glad Mick was driving. I held my breath, but his training kicked in and he maneuvered us through without a scratch. After a quick 96-point turn, we were finally headed the right direction. While Mick conferred with the GPS, I saw an older man leaving his house. 
I scrambled out of the car to wave him down and explained in my excellent C1 Spanish that we needed to go to Madrid, but the GPS brought us here. His brow darkened as he listened to my tale, and I began to think he might yell at us Gidis for invading his quiet neighborhood. First of all, he said, gesturing roughly with a finger in case I didn't understand his Spanish, the GPS is worth nothing here. No vale nada aquí. He wagged his finger for emphasis. Second of all, he said, gesturing again, I'm on my way out. Follow me. I'll show you the way. We followed his little car down turn after turn until we found ourselves on the open highway again. The man rolled down his window and motioned with his arm for us to go on past. This was our way. With a thumbs up and a smile, he sent us home to Madrid. This was Spanish hospitality. Part 2 Some years later, we moved our family to Malaga on the Costa del Sol. We'd only ever visited the city twice before and were still learning our way around. In order for our son to start school, we had to file papers in the city. They told us to go to El Edificio Negro, the black building. It wasn't labeled on any map, and back then Google didn't know everything. When we asked people where to go, the only answer we ever got was El Edificio Negro, as if that was the only answer we needed. No one we talked to knew the address. Why would you when you know where it is? Mick was eventually able to get directions for a nearby bus stop, and from there we just had to ask people on the street. They pointed us closer and closer until we could finally see it. A tall, dark-colored building with darkly tinted windows. Not black, exactly, but since most buildings were white or some shade of brick, it stood out. We'd finally found it. El Edificio Negro. Welcome to Malaga. Part 3 We had been living in Malaga a couple years when we were headed out of town with a friend, right past El Edificio Negro. Except now it wasn't black. It was white. What happened to the Edificio Negro? We asked our friend. He just laughed. Is the black building that's no longer black? It's white, he said. Like Michael Jackson. The sight was almost as shocking as seeing Big Bird with blue feathers. We laughed so hard we had to wipe the tears from our eyes. How will anyone ever find this building now? You just have to find the black building that's no longer black. El Edificio Negro que ya no es negro. Es blanco. Part 4 After seven long years in the States, our family recently returned to Malaga for an extended visit. We were curious to see what had changed. A couple bus lines are different now. New and taller buildings are under construction again. Parts of Alameda Principal are pedestrian only, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are everywhere, with literature in a different language every time we see them. Most of the restaurants in the train station are now American chains. Electric scooters are all over the city, and people sometimes... <gasps> eat food away from a table, or carry open drinks with them as they walk. A subtle culture shift is happening in the city, but there are some things that haven't changed. Waiters never rush you from a table. Feria music is loud, like really loud. Recycling bins are convenient. Playgrounds are crowded with children in the evenings. Public transportation is clean and efficient. Parakeets flock in the trees. Ads on signs sometimes make you avert your eyes. 
espetos are perfectly salted. And you still have to watch your step on the sidewalk or you'll step in a gift from some neighbor's dog. One day, Mick was walking the old neighborhood when he noticed a woman with papers who looked lost. Are you from here? She asked him in Spanish with a clearly Malaguenian accent. No, sorry, I'm from the United States. After a few more paces, he paused and said, Are you looking for something? Surprised at Mick's fluency in Spanish, she said, I'm starting a business and just need to file some papers, but they told me to go to El Edificio Negro, que ya no es negro. How am I supposed to know which white building used to be black? I've lived in the next pueblo my entire life and have never heard of this. Mick shook his head, gave her a smile and said, Come with me. I'm going right by there. I'll show you the way. Desi Anna Sartini lived for a while in a river city far from home. Here's her story of that city and its river. The People of the River by Desi Anna Sartini It's that time of year, here along the river, time for going home. For most people, that means a village somewhere upstream. What about you, they say. Will you go to your hometown? If she goes to her hometown, she will take a plane to America. And they laugh so hard at the thought that someone's home village could be the fairyland of their television sets. No, I will stay here in the city, I say. And they are sad for me because I have no place to go for hometown week. It is truer than they know. For anyone who moved as much as I did growing up, hometown is an ill-defined concept. So many places have been my home. And the fact is, I have lived in this city longer than I have lived in any other. It may never be my hometown, but it is home. They say that once a man drinks the water of the river, it will seep into his soul, and always thereafter, his heart will be drawn to it. Though he travel the world over, he will find no rest until he returns to its banks his new home. Well, I have drunk the water of the river, for it flows through the pipes of every home. And here I stay, an adopted child of the river, in a city not my own. They say that once this was a true river city, where everyone lived either in houseboats afloat on bamboo rafts, or in stilt houses tall upon the shore. It is only in recent history that the population has spread inland. The houseboats and stilt houses are still there, but they are much less common than they once were, ever since industry taught the people to prefer sturdier ground. The river itself brought them that industry, for the river is wide, wide enough for ships to pass through, all the way to the city. So wide, in fact, that if you go out into the middle in the thick of smoke season, you can't see either shore. You just sort of float there, suspended in the middle of no place, lost in a white fog. I suppose it would be peaceful if it didn't burn the lungs. The river is everything to these people. It is their source of water, a major source of food, and the heart of their economy, not to mention their dumping ground. For most of history, it was their highway as well, and even now it is a major road for some. They define their communities by how far upstream or downstream they live, on which bank, 
and how far from the shore. Downstream is where the money is, and the city is where it gathers, for the river brings it to them. It is a port city. The river gives life, takes away filth, and carries the promise of wealth up from the sea. It is also treacherous. They say a woman haunts the river. They say she lurks in its depths, catching unsuspecting victims with her hair and dragging them to their deaths. At night, she rises from the waters and walks the shore, leaving a slimy trail wherever she goes. Many claim to have seen her. Those for whom this is their hometown know beyond a doubt that she is real, and they are sure to tell their children enough stories to keep them from her clutches. But this is not my hometown, and I know that deep currents and passing logs can do quite enough harm without the help of long-haired ladies. So, too, can crocodiles. Even so, this lady of the river, I can't help but wonder, could she be a lesser daughter of the one they call the Queen of the South Sea? In all the paintings I have seen, the Queen of the South sits upon a dragon as it rises out of the sea. But in the stories, the woman and the dragon are one, and she rules a kingdom under the sea. They say she is fearfully beautiful, and that she snatches the souls of her victims and drags them down to her realm to become her slaves. They also say that the kings of the land have made treaties with her and become her husbands, so that it is by her power they rule. Like the Lady of the River, many claim to have seen her. Those for whom this is their hometown are the people of the river, not the sea. But they trust the stories of the people of the sea, so they know that she is real. Indeed, why shouldn't she be? It fits so well with everything else they know. There is no reason to doubt. But this is not my hometown, and I say, no wonder no one here knows how to swim. Meanwhile, I can't help but think of a certain other woman who sits on a seven-headed scarlet beast by many waters. They say she intoxicates the nations and is herself drunk on the blood of the saints. Kings and merchants are in love with her, for by her they are made rich. Surely she is the mother of all such ladies of the water. And if she is in any sense real, what then can I say of these? It is the way of rivers to flow into the sea, and this one is no exception. I don't know how far it is from our city down to the sea, but that by itself tells you something. In all my years here, I have never heard of anyone going to the coast, not in this province anyway. We do have a coast. I suppose there's just no need to go. After all, the river brings the sea to them. Merchants have come to the city since time immemorial. This once was the seat of an ancient kingdom, made great by the riches of commerce. The merchants brought exotic goods to trade for products of the jungle, which the villagers brought down the river to sell in the city. It was the meeting place of worlds. Very little is left of those ancient days. There are none of the ruins one might expect. For it was a river kingdom, and eventually, fast or slow, the river washes all away and carries it to the sea. All that once belonged to that ancient kingdom no doubt now fills the halls of the Queen of the South. The river also brought conquerors, not least of which were the Europeans. 
Great tales have been told in verse of how the people of the river beat back the European horde, those monkey-faced heathens from across the sea. For a time, anyway, there was no stopping the inevitable. Eventually, the city fell and was forever changed. The river is treacherous, for the woman on the Scarlet Beast is treacherous, and her servants rule the waters. Or so it seems, for now. But let us not forget that even the rivers of Babylon flowed from Eden. Just as it is the way of rivers to flow into the sea, so it is the way of people to follow the promise of riches. Thus have so many followed the river down to the city from their hometowns upstream. They have come to seek their fortunes, to see if they can get a share in the riches that come up from the sea. Once they are here, who knows whether they will ever return to their native villages again, except, of course, for hometown week. Thus have the banks of the river swelled with fortune seekers, and every year the buildings rise and the city expands. They say the city didn't used to flood so much before the high-rises went up, before all the trees were uprooted and the ground cemented over. They say the city is sinking now, and that it will only get worse. For who can resist the lure of the riches of the sea? The construction will continue, even as the city sinks under the weight of all its worldly treasure, until at last, fast or slow, the river washes all away. For no matter what comes up from the sea, still always the river cleanses. The river's flow is strong and deep. Against its current, the ships fight their way to the meeting place of realms. For the city sits on the brink of a battle between the river and the sea. The woman who sits by many waters boasts of her conquests, but in the end, even she must bow before the Lord of the waters, who sits not on a beast, but a throne. For what is catching a man on the beach compared with calling him from the ends of the earth? And what is dragging a man to his death compared with raising him to new life? For they say a river flows from the throne of the great Lord, and that it gives healing and life to all that it touches. They say that one day it will bring even the Dead Sea to life, and that all true rivers find their source in this one. I have never seen the headwaters of our river, but I hear that they are in the mountains, about a ten-hour drive from the city. I hear it is a lush and exceedingly beautiful place, like all this land must have been once, back when it was still a rainforest, before all the wood was sold for gold. Someday I will go and see it for myself, but not yet. For now, my place is in the city, asking questions, trying my best to understand, and telling stories like this one. But someday, when my task is done, I will go with my friends, and together we will follow the river, farther up and farther in, until at last we come to the mountain and the place from which the river springs. What we shall find there, I cannot say. Some say it is a lush garden. Others say there is a great temple. Still others say that both are true, and the garden and the temple are one. As for me, this hometown week, I live in the hope of the sons of Korah. For they say that there we shall find the city of God, the true hometown of all river peoples, both native-born and adopted. 
When Holly Schurter moved to Henry, Illinois, she discovered that there wasn't much to do, except for when there was. Well, except for, by Holly Schurter. My dad's job with the Kroger Company required our family to move a lot. We'd lived in six different towns by the time I'd started school. My mom explained once that as a store manager, Dad was a fireman. That is, when a store was in trouble of some kind, the company sent Dad to fix it. So, when I was a baby, we moved from the college-turned-university town where I was born to a very small town with only one house to rent. Once the store there was doing well, we moved to a county seat with a connection to an Indian chief. Then we moved to a tiny college town with a picturesque square. Next, we lived in a farming community where I started kindergarten, and my uncle landed his little piper cub in the field next to our house, offering Dad a ride to see the country. And then we moved to the town where we lived for over seven years, but nothing much happened there. Henry was the best town in Illinois by a dam site. But how could we tell? When we drove out to the dam site, it was scary. A very narrow, rocky road out to the abandoned dam. You could still see the locks, but the dam hadn't been used in decades. It was no longer needed. Nothing to see here except the bend in the Illinois River, sunlight shimmering on the water. The week we moved to Henry, there was a 4th of July celebration, a carnival, a parade, special bargains downtown, and fireworks over the river. The town bustled with visitors. The American Legion had a fish fry, and neighbors stopped in to see if we needed anything, but other than that, not much was happening. Once we got settled in, Mom signed us up for swimming lessons. The swimming pool graced the highest level of Waterworks Park an expanse of green with a playground and picnic tables overlooking the river. The pool was small and basic, <laughs> no water slides there. But all summer long it boasted swimming lessons, pool parties, and kids trying to cool off in the heat. If you couldn't find your friends there, they probably were out of town. After supper, the pool filled up with families, and we swam till the moon came out. But other than that, there wasn't much to do in the summer. Well, except for the Dairy Queen downtown. Next to the small zoo, a local dentist had started because he loved animals. He had a peacock. And the A&W root beer stand on Route 17. We'd ride our bikes from the Dairy Queen to the A&W, unless we were at the library or Hawsey's. Hawsey's was a mercantile emporium, that is, a treasure chest of a store stuffed full of stuff. Linens, tools, dishes, clothes of every size and kind, hats, pots and pans, hardware, books, pet supplies, birdcage anyone? All piled high on creaking tables and candy a whole table of penny candy right by the big brass cash register. If you couldn't find it at Hawsey's, it probably didn't exist. But other than that, 
there wasn't much downtown. Well, except for Weedman's Dime Store, where shoelaces and sewing notions shared shelf space with stationery and silverware. And Watercott's Department Store, which offered bow ties for Dad's Christmas gifts and Buster Brown shoes, as well as a fabric department, ladies' hats, and household linens and dishes. And the little dress shop, and, and Meisner's gift shop, where compotes and bases and jewelry boxes and a newsstand rack offered hopeful window shopping. And each month we could ask the proprietor to save a copy of Jack and Jill magazine for us. But besides that, there wasn't much to look at, except for two grocery stores that sold flip-flops in big cardboard bins from April until fall and Christmas trees on their parking lots all through December. And the implement company, right in the middle of one of the downtown blocks, they had a big tractor right there in their showroom. It took up almost all the space. Or, or the paint store where Mom worked, where they had a big paint mixing machine and old wallpaper books. If you asked nicely, they'd give you one of the outdated wallpaper books for May baskets and other paper projects. And other than that, there wasn't much shopping to do. Well, Unless you count the drugstore with its pharmacy at the back and the soda fountain along the side of the store, where even a kid could nestle into a booth and order a Green River. And there were a few aisles of hairnets and Evening in Paris perfume and Vicks VapoRub to peruse. And other than that, except for two restaurants with air conditioning, oh, they both had screen doors with a metal penguin advertising that it's cool inside and a, a barber shop with a revolving barber's pole, and a newspaper that reported on when someone had company staying over. Well, there wasn't much going on. Well, maybe the Santa Claus parade in early December, when there were floats and a marching band with majorettes and merchants giving out candy and prizes, and of course Santa Claus himself getting ready to settle into his throne at the hardware store, the hardware store stocked hammers and nails and things Dad liked to check out. But every Christmas they turned the lower level of their store into Santa's workshop and invited families in to meet Santa there once the parade was over. He'd spend most of December there off and on, and while you window shopped in Toyland, you could feel his eyes just watching you so he'd know what you really wanted but as you can see, there wasn't really much to do in Henry. We had to content ourselves with sledding on Purdue's Hill next to Charles Purdue's house in the winter. He was an eccentric, white-haired old man who made a habit of sitting outside in his front yard in big, weathered Adirondack chairs in the summer with his wife Edna. Surrounded by towering hollyhocks, he would sit and carve while Edna would fiddle around with a set of paints she had. Sometimes he'd carve a crow call for us or a small miniature duck. Mr. Perdue had built his house himself using river rock and other material he'd scavenged. But time caught up with him and the rhododendron and other shrubs and trees he loved threatened to overgrow the house. It was only later that we learned Mr. Perdue was a well-known, world-class, master duck decoy carver and naturalist. He'd carved for L.L. Bean and still had visitors from all over folks hoping he'd carve something for them. 
He had pioneered a way to send the ducks that hunters shot from nearby Lake Snatchewine up to Chicago. Fancy restaurants there couldn't get enough fresh duck. By icing them first thing in the morning as soon as the hunters delivered them to him, then putting them ice and all on the train headed to Chicago. And he'd invented things for hunters and outdoorsmen and knew more about the river than just just about anyone around. But other than Charlie Perdue and his wife Edna, who'd figured out a way to paint duck decoys so you could hardly tell they weren't breathing, there weren't any important people who lived there. Well, except for Mrs. R., who started a library in her house when she moved to town temporarily with her engineer husband. He was in charge of building a bridge across the Illinois River. Evidently, they liked Henry so much, they stayed even after the bridge was built. She built the library into a well-respected local asset and moved it into an old two-story building downtown with a balcony where only adults could sit and read. She intimidated all the children who visited into reading worthwhile books by looking over the top of her glasses and asking if their mother knew what they wanted to read and wouldn't this be more worthwhile? But other than that, not much happened in Henry. The people who lived there had to make do with the quiet beauty of the river that ran through the town and those mornings when the mist rose from the river and ducks settled into the quiet places to rest. They had to content themselves with walking past their neighbors' gardens and stopping to chat a bit, or scuffling through the bright maple and oak leaves that scattered themselves across lawns and sidewalks every fall. They had to make do with watching ice form on the river and crystal icicles drip from the trees in Waterworks Park. And although the movie theater and the opera house had closed years before, the churches were all still open, so people found their places there pretty regularly to worship and fellowship. Oh, and once a year the county fair came to town with harness races and food tents and a 4-H fair. Outside of that, though... This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.